I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Uh, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at the Long Now Foundation. Uh, as many of you know, we start these talks with a long short, a short film that in some way exemplifies long-term thinking, and often we, we cheat and use things like time lapses. Um, Tonight's is a little different, but before I introduce that, I just wanted to mention uh, there is a whole other series uh, now going on that Long Now is producing uh, at our smaller venue, The Interval. Uh, this Friday, we have a 5 p.m. kind of a, uh, a social hour talk with Rachel Sussman, who formally spoke in this series on her project uh, photographing uh, uh, organisms that have lived longer than 2,000 years all over the world. And her book is just now coming out, and we'll be hearing another talk from her, as well as she'll be doing a book signing. Uh, that's Friday uh, in Fort Mason, and afterwards you can go to uh, get your dinner at Off the Grid from all the trucks. And uh, Tuesday we have Violet Blue speaking about her newest book, uh, Smart Girl's Guide to Privacy. And she has all kinds of good tips for how to not let your digital data go out into the world. Um, so tonight's, uh, tonight's long short um, is actually by uh, someone who has, I believe, agreed to, to give a talk in the series when he walks by in about five years. Um, and he started his walk out of Africa uh, a little over a year ago. This, this is a description of his project from right before he left. He's, uh, he, he emailed us from Israel, uh, where he is now, and gave us permission for this, uh, this video. And, uh, and they are actually soliciting support for their effort. Uh, and there's a, there's a URL at the end um, to help get them through the next, or him through, walking the entire out of Africa track down to uh, down through the Americas over the course of seven years. Enjoy. Next year, I'm taking a long walk, retracing our ancestors' first great migration across the planet, starting in our birthplace, the Rift Valley of East Africa, and walking north through the Levant and then eastward across the gravel plains of Asia to Arctic Siberia, from where I'll hop a boat to the Americas and ramble down the western flank to Patagonia, the last corner of the world where our ancestors ran out of horizon. I'm a journalist and I'm trying really hard to return to a more human pace of storytelling, not just jetting in and out of assignments, but walking with people digging deep into crucial stories that we miss because we're all moving too fast to listen. I'm as worried as anyone about the troubles we face in the century ahead. Climate change, resource shortages, mass migrations, war. But our ancestors also overcame huge obstacles in their primal journey across the world. Whether it was ice ages or massive epidemics or famines, my long journey will be difficult, and I'm not so naive to believe that the world can't kill you in an instant. It can. But in my experience, when you slow down, people tend to open up to you. The world, it, it's home, after all. 
Good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, the Long Now Foundation adores deserts. Uh, I think it's because the Long Now adores deserts. Because when you go into the desert, you step out of biological, you step out of cultural time, you step out of biological time, and you step into geological time. And things in deserts, because the water isn't there anymore, are incredibly well preserved. Partly because there's no water to rot them and various kinds of traffic to wear them down. Partly because humans don't go there anymore because the water's not there. If you want the long view of the long horizon, <laughs> the desert has uh, large quantities of that, except during dust storms. Our speaker tonight um, has been dealing with the best of all of Earth's deserts, the Sahara. Uh, it's bigger than anything. You look at Earth from space and big events are Antarctica, the oceans, and the big, brown, amazing event of North Africa. So everything south of the Mediterranean all the way down to Central Africa is just one single, enormous, unexplored, uninhabited event that has been an event at various times in human history, and is again in various respects. And when our speaker looks at things out there, when the very few explorers go there and look at things out there, they're often looking at things that nobody's looked at or thought about in thousands of years. That's what geological time is like to experience, to examine, and to dissect and analyze and then think about. And who's at the best at that is our speaker, Stefan Kroplin. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. Hello, everyone. Uh, does the sound work? Okay, thank you, because this fell out of my pocket. So I'm going to talk uh, tonight on uh, my favorite uh, subject, uh, the Sahara, and particularly on the mysterious desert cradle uh, hidden in the deep Sahara. Um, the Sahara, as Stuart just mentioned, is the largest hot desert on Earth. It covers almost about the size of the United States, nine million square kilometers. So one lifetime is not, not good enough uh, to, to know at least a part of it. And of course, the Sahara doesn't exist. There's many Saharas. It's like a big difference between the Canadian border and Florida and the East Coast states and California. And the same applies to the Sahara, of course. So I'm focusing on the Eastern Sahara, which um, to the present day probably is the least explored uh, part of, the, uh, of this big desert. And even in 100 years ago, it was practically completely unexplored, as you see on this um, atlas from 1922. And so it's a big uh, opportunity for geologists and geoarchaeologists like mine of really going still these days on the um, uh, research frontiers. And that's um, 
part of the sites we've and I've been working during the past uh, 35 years. So each red spot can stay for a few days, but it can also stand for a few months of field work. And this was only possible within the scope of several large-scale long-term research projects uh, called collaborative research centers. Um, which provided the logistics and the possibilities to work in these remote places. Um, this is an outline of what I'm going to talk. So first I will talk a, a bit on the working conditions, which are a bit different from a geological work in, some, uh, work in some other places on the globe. And then I will pro provide you a few examples of, of outstanding sites, but it's, it's just a very short um, selection of sites I could show you if there would be more than an hour. And finally, I will try to condense everything into a short synthesis and conclusion on the origin. So going to your study uh, area sometimes take weeks and months and there's no tracks because the eastern Sahara is practically devoid of, of, of wells and near-surface groundwater. There's no Bedouins as in the central or western part of the Sahara. That means there are practically no tracks and you always have, have uh, to find uh, your, your own way and especially during the pre-GPS period that was uh, sometimes a bit complicated. You have to carry everything you can and for example this few Kababish Bedouins were the only people we met during the first 10 years of fieldwork in the Eastern Sahara, where the last uh, prehistoric people left some 5,000 years ago, and most places you go, you are the first human, homo sapiens, who returns to these sites. So sometimes you have to drive down a quite steep slope. Sometimes uh, you have to climb up uh, an escarpment of a couple of hundred meters, uh, which uh, takes uh, sometimes a whole day just to get two vehicles up, building your old, uh, your old uh, road uh, using sand ladders. Sometimes you have to shovel away half a dune and prepare your own road to, to find a descent uh, 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 down an escarpment in some places. Well, that's daily sports. Uh, this is digging. Uh, out uh, your vehicles, which is uh, particularly difficult in salty marsh deposits with near-surface groundwater. Sometimes the whole fleet uh, gets, uh, uh, is sunk, in the, like here in the Great Sensi of Egypt, where sometimes uh, the cars are stuck 50 times in a row, and in the evening you know what you've done, but certainly no research these days. <laughs> and even worse is if you have a 26-ton trunk get sunk in some uh, sort of muddy salt uh, deposits and, and uh, you can go on it for some while until it breaks down and unloading uh, 18 uh, tons of payload and getting three uh, vehicles uh, out, out of it uh, uh, made our day or the last day of 1983. So sometimes you have to build your own road just to get down from, from plateaus into the foreland without knowing whether you will make it out again. Uh, because sometimes if, if, for example, a valley gets blocked and you're down with the cars and you have a serious problem, and sometimes it gets dusty. Most people don't like it. We like it because these are weathered paleo-lake deposits, so-called uh, fesh-fesh deposits, and a second later you wouldn't see uh, the car 
anymore. Sometimes you have kind of uh, mechanical problems, like in this case, where uh, the back axis of our Unimog was cut, like with a laser beam, 100 kilometers away from the Nile. And what we could do is use a backhoe shovel as a force wheel and make uh, walk the last uh, 50 miles back to the <laughs> Nile Valley. Sometimes uh, visibility is quite bad, like this a few years ago where we had a one-week-long dust storm, which is much more uh, difficult than sandstorms because sand normally doesn't fly higher than two meters above ground. So on a camel on top of the car, you're, you're easy, while uh, driving for a week with such uh, uh, visibility of just a few yards uh, poses some problems, except especially if you have to cross uh, dune fields. The biggest problem in the past few years when since our paradise of fools where we where we stayed up to six months uh, in, in a row in one year without meeting a single person today is of course insecurity and normally you only find out very uh, last minute that this for example is a, a detachment a official detachment of the uh, uh, Chadian army and not rebels if this would have been rebels or bandits I might not be here for this lecture today and even worse are the landmines which are um, widely distributed in the access zones to our uh, study areas in the central Sahara, uh, usually remains, bad remains from the Libyan uh, war with Chad, for example, where you're not supposed uh, to leave uh, one track and um, me going in front, that's one of the rare occasions where... Um, all my uh, colleagues are really following in my track, track uh, directly, which is also normally not often the case. If you're unlucky, then you hit an anti-tank mine. Uh, to cut a long story short, the two passengers were not hurt with a miracle, but a few minutes later, nothing of this uh, brand new Mercedes uh, car were, were just some liquid aluminium. And... Going there, of course, you find you have to find a campsite every night because usually geologists are Bedouin, so we move, we do our, normally we get our work quickly done, so uh, uh, preferred campsites are in the, in the um, downwind side of this large Bakani dunes, which can weigh up to hundreds of thousand tons, which are transported by the wind a couple of meters, up to eight meters a year, so still not under, well understood phys physical uh, um, features. And of course, uh, no, everybody knows it's quite hot in the Sahara, sometimes plus uh, more than 50 degrees in, in, in the shade. And of course, there is little shade, so if you forget to... to take your foot underneath the car, then you got a heavily sunburn with it minutes. On the other hand, much worse are the cold nights, which, which including the chill factor, which cool, can cool down in the winter season, and that's the only time of the year when you can work to a felt minus 20 degrees Celsius. I don't know that exactly in Fahrenheit, but believe me, it's cold. And that's our, <laughs> that's our kitchen. Uh, uh, if, you, if there's some sandstone and you forget uh, to close our kitchen, then uh, there's a room for, for some cleaning up the next day. So enough with it. Our, that what takes up a high percentage of our work in the Sahara. So 
uh, when I was young, I thought, well, one day uh, preparation uh, uh, is needed for one hour of serious fieldwork. Sometimes in between I got that one week is necessary from writing proposals down to getting the permits and customs uh, and transport and so on for one hour. But anyway, there's a very low uh, relation between the work you have to uh, 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 put on logistics just to get to these uh, remote areas. Our field methods, I'm not talking about lab methods, this would be another lecture, but, uh, and we are uh, studying more than 50 different uh, proxies, as we say, uh, to find out paleoclimate, but the most, uh, our favorite uh, uh, time is, is, is digging holes, uh, either using such small uh, uh, um, mechanical excavators like this one, uh, and then digging a, f uh, a few yard uh, deep holes where you can take the samples and look for archaeological remains, etc., which is much better than uh, taking cores, and if not possible, then just digging a hole and, 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 and go in and look what you find at the base. That's geologists. Sometimes we, we already dug uh, six, seven meter deep holes, and that was what I've seen the whole day, taking the section. There was just a hole in the top that's in the central Sahara. And other interesting, uh, more uh, uh, easier work is well taking up stratigraphies. That means layers of deposits of former, uh, uh, now long extinct lakes and rivers and playa lakes, and this is one uh, of the sites. For the archaeologists, a lot of time has to be spent for surveying or for mapping uh, any uh, sites, and that's a large prehistoric site where at the first sight few people would think that there's anything left. Archaeological excavate, excavations are extremely time-consuming, like here in the Great Sea of, uh, of Sensi, where sometimes you need a couple of weeks just to excavate a few square meters, but every excavation means destruction and means to, to uh, have to resolve this big puzzle of the kind of artifacts which have been produced at this site and to tell who did it, what skills did he have, in which direction was the wind blowing and so on, you have to, to uh, uh, take uh, this time uh, not, not to lose any possible information to your best of conscience. Uh, excavating one Neolithic grave, for example, can also take one week for four to five archaeologists the same applies to remains like this elephant jaw embedded in uh, Paleo Lake deposits, uh, which is also, uh, it's not just uh, taking it out and sampling it, but getting all the information possible. So now why do all this kind of work? And the first uh, reply is, of course, uh, academic. It's first of all to say, well, uh, do the ocean, ocean cores and the ice cores from the polar region tell the whole story uh, for climate change on the continents? And that's in the, in the end where people are living, used to be living and will be living in the future. And as a man is neither fish nor penguin, the important information comes, uh, uh, has to come from terrestrial paleoclimatology. And there's many things, for example, which were uh, that the Holocene, the post-glacial period of the past 11,000 years, was considered based on polar research as the most stable period. As you will see in the Sahara, uh, the, the opposite was the case. Another um, 
a hypothesis which was based on an ocean core taken by my good friend Peter Dimenokal uh, from Lamont in, in New York was that he was claiming uh, by analyzing or interpreting ocean cores that the that the onset of the Green Sahara happened within decades, within one generation, and is the same, that's what he claimed was his, his desiccation of the entire Sahara, of what he called um, uh, the, the African humid period, uh, happened also in a few decades, and that was, uh, well, uh, which didn't go along with our data, which we've been collecting, and of course, um, uh, the general uh, approach is to see how climate and environmental change uh, change the socio-economic uh, uh, way uh, of life of the prehistoric dwellers in what is today a hyper-arid desert and whether that uh, included cultural change and whether that already brought uh, uh, some... some um, uh, evolution, which is uh, important uh, to to Africa to the present day, uh, and so paleoclimatology is always more amazing. That's why also my friend Ray Bradley put it on the leading textbook on paleoclimatology. Once humans are in paleoclimatology, without humans is is a, is a bit less exciting. And of course, uh, I recently stumbled on this quote uh, from Stuart, uh, the urchin keeps displacing the important in our daily lives. And that made me think, uh, why on earth, uh, uh, or why someone like me who goes into the desert for more than 40 years, spent there a couple of months every year, uh, there must be uh, uh, some, some hidden motivation. If not, probably you wouldn't do it. And some people only go once and never again. And there's... Um, Many, many things uh, which come to my mind. I mean, first of all, you have in your campsite in the night, you have a 360 degree horizon around you. And, and um, you hear the blood in your veins. Some Bedouins say you can even listen to your bones. And uh, you hear the meteorite, if you have some meteorite uh, going down in the night, you, you hear the sound. When there's no wind, there's absolute, absolute uh, quiet. Um, you, of course, you, you stop being a consumer, like in the Western world, a consuming agent, more or less, because there's nothing you could buy and so on. The same as money loses any importance, because the only thing it's good for when you stay months uh, 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 without meeting any people is maybe to light a fire. Of course, there's no internet. Um, and so, so does your whole existence, which in one way loses any importance under this hotel of a million stars, which you have any night when there's no uh, sandstorm, and, and staying outside, so listening, uh, thinking about these daily problems, uh, finding a parking lot, they sound so absurd once you're in a place where you have nine kilometers of parking lot available, and it's difficult to explain that uh, to some of the few remaining uh, local people there. And on the other hand, your own existence gains a lot of value because even any single drop of water is a miracle, more or less. And even the morning, uh, you, you have a, a, a sympathy when there's a, a, a slightly frozen scorpion uh, crawling out under your sleeping bed. So you would never have the idea to kill it because he survived, you survived another cold night or, or stormy night, and, and, and he's... Uh, trying to do his life as you do. So, so there's, a, there's a sort of, of, of 
sympathy, which may sound crazy to you, but that's really one of the um, uh, of, 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 of the motivations you have. And um, so, of course, deserts are timeless. And there we also are in the one long now subject. It's probably the state, it's the fate of the planet. Everything will become desert, like the surface of Mars and so on. So it's, it's without time. And um, uh, Again, well, before, so I start with it before I become too, get too philosophical. That's really, it's, I think it's no wonder that most religions originated in deserts, where you really confronted to yourself. And now I'm showing you a few examples. One comes from the Gilf Kebir, a big sandstone plateau in the southwestern corner of Egypt, uh, south of, uh, of the Great Sand Sea of Egypt, and you have this almost a thousand mile, mile long longitudinal dues up to 100 meters high, uh, which, which uh, run into uh, the sandstone plateau. And some may know it to have seen the film uh, uh, The English Patient, uh, uh, which uh, goes back to one of our uh, 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 tradition. Uh, uh, the English Patient, in fact, was Laszlo Almasis, uh, to whom we still have a lot of, of, of direct relation and of course the film The English Patient wasn't uh, taken shot uh, there close to the uh, Libyan border but uh, uh, in Hollywood and, and Tunisia and some easier places but there you have uh, what was what Almashi or the English Patient called the swimmer's cave where you have depictions of uh, apparently swimming uh, swimming people in the middle of the desert where today there's less than two millimeters of rainfall on an average which uh, uh, forms part of of, of the rock art in this cave. And uh, on this radar image, you can see that uh, it's, in fact, there were really fluvial system drainage uh, uh, patterns uh, existing uh, during uh, the, the period, the uh, first half of the Holocene, 11 to 5,000 years ago, more or less, which uh, originated directly at the foot of this cave of the swimmers. And recently, just a few years ago, some Italian tourist explorers found another cave nearby, which is probably the single most rich, uh, richest uh, single uh, abrique uh, in the all of the Sahara, where you have more than 10,000 uh, single depictions ranging from two millimeters to to more than two meters, depicting some some monster-like features, and also depicting uh, some swimming. Uh, people, person apparently, uh, and, and all kinds of other uh, uh, details which tell a story about the prehistoric life in this remote place uh, when the Sahara was, was rather savannah uh, than a desert. And you, there's even many uh, um, uh, uh, paintings and engravings which uh, may be connected to the much, much later uh, art uh, during the Pharaonic Empire. On the other hand, there's still uh, lots of room of speculation and we normally prefer to get some uh, firm evidence before venturing into uh, to much uh, demanding uh, uh, hypothesis on the origin. There's a book which uh, our Heinrich Barth Institute edited recently. It's five kilograms, so I couldn't uh, bring it, but it's, uh, it's probably the largest uh, uh, rock art documentation of a single site, uh, uh, well, 
to my knowledge. So not too far away is Wadi uh, Bacht, uh, and usually we give our own names because there's no Bedouins you could call for local names, so we always term most of the sites ourselves. This is a playa lake, like in the southwestern uh, uh, states of today, which once uh, had, had a quite impressive surface, uh, a water surface, uh, which uh, was formed because the water was blocked by a, by a former dune, which Uh, uh, closed the entire valley and only some 7,000 years ago the dam, this dune dam broke and so through a natural gap uh, the water drained and since then there was no more accumulation, accumulation of deposits uh, which are the only basis for, for climate reconstruction geologists have. And that's one of the sections and where you see that you have each and every single major rainfall event recorded in some tiny sand layers. And um, if you uh, g get uh, radiocarbon dating, you get uh, more detailed um, information on the distribution of Uh, secular rain events over the millennia uh, in this hyperarid core, present-day hyperarid core of the Eastern Sahara, which had rainfall up to 150 millimeters uh, per year uh, compared to less than two millimeters today. And all of these deposits are connected uh, to the change in the prehistoric life and economy. So another interesting point is, which I would just mention shortly that it's not the average rainfall per year which is important, but rather the, uh, the distribution of the pale rainfall. That means some monsoonal summer daytime rainfall has less, much less impact on the growth of vegetation than have this very uh, 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 tie, uh, very uh, uh, light winter Night, night time rains which occurred during the later period which pro, uh, provided for much more grassland and much more pasture than in the earlier days. That means sometimes uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the data from geology and archaeology are contradictory until you uh, resolve the puzzle. So another example is what was once the largest paleo lake in In, um, in the Eastern Sahara, what we called West Nubian Paleo Lake. And what you see here is not uh, uh, the backbone of a gazelle, but the backbone of a Nile perch, which used to live in, in this place where today uh, no scorpion can survive, uh, with a, a length of uh, almost uh, two yards. And some places are not covered by windblown sand. And with the old Landsat 1 data we had, there was practically nothing to be seen. But uh, it used to be a very large lake uh, with full of, uh, of um, uh, fauna. That means within five minutes you could collect uh, such a, a collection of uh, fish bones and crocodile bones and hippo bones, etc., etc. And also we found some turtwurses and these uh, uh, turtwurses uh, have been the last proof that probably what we rediscovered and called it West Nubian Paleo Lake in fact corresponds with the Ptolemyan marshes of the tortoises, which are, are recorded in the written sources uh, by Ptolemy and where the geology, present-day geology, well, could also locate these lakes which uh, were not known uh, before. And, and this, uh, what looks 
like today must should have looked like present day Chad today a very large but very shallow uh, freshwater lake and of course once there's water there's prehistoric settlements and what looks like this today including uh, cattle burials and all kinds of archaeological uh, <coughs> with all kinds of uh, archaeological uh, features uh, probably looked like this when the early cattle were used by this uh, uh, by the people living around this lake. And again, uh, very short, sometimes settlement sets on only after the maximum lake extension has gone because who likes to settle in a marsh which is infested by crocodiles and, and malaria, mosquitoes and so on, that usually only once these lakes, these paleo lakes became smaller, that people approached while the surrounding environments were no more good uh, for living, uh, so they were approaching these uh, remaining uh, lakes until they uh, finally disappeared. For this example is one which is uh, to the present day practically the least explored part of the Sahara, if not of Africa. And this is in the extreme northeastern uh, corner of uh, what is today the Republic of Chad. Only one, Hassanein Bey, tried to cross it riding in front of his caravan uh, on a white horse. But he was guided, of course, by some uh, guides uh, from, from Kufra in the southern Libyan uh, oasis through Jebel Uenat and then he crossed it but he was riding at night so there's practically nothing left of his, his first uh, transect through this area and he would have died of thirst if, they, if the year before wouldn't have been a rainy one, exceptional rainy one and so they found a galta with water and that's the way they made it uh, into sub-Saharan Africa. So that was one trip we did in 2005 on this Erdimar which is as unknown as the Gilf Kebir Plateau, which I've been showing before, uh, was 120 years ago. That means there has never ever been any scientific research and or even any other visitor uh, to, to the written knowledge. And it, 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 it's a high escarpment. These are cars for scale where you first have to find your way up. Even there, Google doesn't help too much. Sometimes you're driving uh, again on on apparently uh, sandy surfaces, which in fact are just a small windblown cover on weathered uh, uh, fluvial and lake former paleo lake deposits. And this is a dust which in the end nourishes the Amazonian rainforest because this uh, dust which originates in the in Chad today is transported over the Atlantic and provides all the minerals necessary for the survival of uh, tropical rainforests. And that's typical landscape. It's like the surface on Mars down into detail, really from millimeter scale uh, to tens of kil kilometer scale. Uh, uh, there are, it's very similar. So this is probably uh, the best uh, analogon for the landforms on Mars on planet Earth. And there are some in the northeast parts exist like this, where you could have a 360-degree uh, uh, view, which would look all the same. And at this uh, specific position, 19.5 degrees north, 23 degrees uh, east, 
uh, is what used to be uh, uh, the, uh, the triangular junction between uh, the three empires of France, England and Italy. And that was why this small stone cairn was erected by the only known Maharist uh, uh, a soldier, two soldiers who were sent there to mark the border of the three uh, European empires in 37. So we didn't find it, we found it later, but they did a very good job, even if it's uh, many kilometers away from the GPS position, of course. <laughs> And I was showing this to show that there are places like the Erdimar Plateau where there is practically nothing. There are almost no uh, uh, prehistoric uh, uh, settlement site. There, is, uh, there are no uh, paleo lake that means this plateau must have been uh, what it is still today because Erdimar means the enemy's country and this has been also uh, depicted like that since historical writings and uh, even if today, if you r would run into someone and probably you could stay, stay there for many years without uh, meeting a single person but if then for sure this would be bandits or rebels while surrounding of the Erdimar you have still these virgin sites which consists of these grinding tools and many many other archaeological material and that's for sure that not even any Bedouin has passed at this location during the past 5,000 years because he certainly would have taken this muraka, this grinding tool, uh, for his wife uh, at home in his village uh, for, for uh, regular daily use. So that was my team of this uh, first uh, uh, scientific exploration of this part of the world and now I'm taking you to another part uh, uh, of Chad in northeastern Chad, the Ennedi Plateau, which is a triangularly escaped sandstone plateau. It's like a big labyrinth, so 90% uh, are completely unknown to the present day and probably will still take uh, a generation uh, to, to explore all the thousands and thousands of miles of box canyons uh, hidden in this plateau the size of Switzerland, uh, more than 30,000 uh, square kilometers, or maybe one day Mars-type robots who will do the job. And the first mentioning of the sites was by Gustav Nachtigall, one of the early German explorers who did the basic research in Chad, but even Nachtigall, in spite his five-year travel, didn't make it there, but he collected all the information by the local people at the time and was describing it quite well. So the, the surrounding escarpment looks like this. Um, in many places, um, you have uh, real labyrinths, which to me are really the origin of the tales of 1001 Night with the labyrinth where a camel can hardly go through and so on and to the detail. And this is a recent drone view from a clip we, we prepared for UNESCO recently, where you see that you really can get lost if there's a dust storm. GPS doesn't work because you don't have a satellite access. You can really die of thirst if you lose yourself inside. So even today, uh, you have to take uh, uh, care and some places resemble very much to the Monument Valley but they are much more distributed and much bigger. You have uh, some of the uh, highest uh, rock arches on the globe. You have for example these mushroom rocks uh, which indicate the former former land surface and this is evidence of millions of sandstorms who have taken everything in the lower two meters uh, away. Uh, you have all kinds of other interesting, interesting uh, uh, sandstone pillars, etc. And you have uh, lots of vegetation, especially in its western valleys, because of the uh, uh, higher elevation, uh, which collects some 
monsoonal rainfall still coming from the Gulf of Guinea and trans, uh, uh, transversing a big part of sub-Saharan Africa to reach there. So that's why it has been called uh, the Garden Eden of the Sahara, which is a sort of relict uh, uh, area, which uh, is, is a good comparison for the situation during the Green Sahara 11,000 to 5,000 years ago. You also have some, some very small entrances uh, uh, to, to, to gorges, which sometimes open up to cathedral-like uh, structures where you find trees and, 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 and birds and water and so on. And you have the famous uh, uh, Gorge d'Aichet, where there's still the last uh, remaining crocodiles in all of the Sahara, the last remaining crocodiles, uh, which have survived 5,000 years of aridity, which once came from the, from the Nile, uh, going along the Wadi Hawa to reach the Enedi Mountains, and the last populations, uh, now there are seven, and there's against all the forecasts of all biologists, there's a new newborn crocodile one, which got out of an egg last year, so even sometimes a minimum population is good enough for proliferance. That's the right word. So you here you probably see nothing at all, but if you look closer, you find these two uh, Barbary sheep, mouflons, which are still living in this place, which are extinct in most places of the Sahara. You also still find lots of other uh, um, animals which, which are completely distinct, uh, extinct anywhere else in the Sahara. And we met people who have never seen a white person in their life, never seen a Western or European in their life, who live in very remote places on top of the plateau. And once uh, they, they, they got to know that we wouldn't do them any harm, they were very friendly. That happens to the present day in the Sahara, people who have never seen any white person. And most famous of all is the rock art of the Enedi, which uh, in my view surpasses any other rock art sites uh, of which there are uh, a few in the Sahara, including the Tassili, a chair in the uncounted abris and caves there, and suddenly, which gave a very clear, almost photographic impression of prehistoric life uh, in this in this uh, um, mountainous area during the time, and you already can see some, some details as it is, but once you're applying some uh, 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 color-enhancing uh, methods, then you see much more, and you can really uh, find uh, details on the dress the women had, uh, the type of dance when they went out for a party or whatsoever, taken from into details on the hut uh, to, to uh, how they had the... the the hairdresses, etc., many, many, many other details uh, which are hidden there and which really give uh, direct insight in, in this prehistoric uh, um, way of life uh, 9,000 to uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, more or less. And this is all natural colors which uh, survived... Uh, uncounted hours of insulation, heavy insulation and sandstorms and so on, and they are still there. But the most important animal depicted were the cows, which apparently had a much bigger significance uh, to prehistoric uh, uh, people uh, than, than elephants or giraffes or hippos or rhinos and so on. And in the later period, during the Iron Age, you had uh, typically the sort of horse rider, um, 
until the camel people arrived around 2,000 years ago because camels were introduced into the Sahara only about 2,000 years ago by the, after the Persian uh, 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 um, invasion of, of, of Egypt. And there you see all the, the first snakes coming up and normally this, uh, these uh, camels are, are painted, uh, overlay of earlier uh, rock art such as uh, these horses or, or the, the cattle, and sometimes on top of, the, of these camels, which uh, are the more recent uh, historical period, you still find a Toyota pickup uh, with some Kalashnikov attached on top, and this is the most recent rock art dating from the 1950s when there was the onset of modern uh, uh, cars in this part of the Sahara. We might even have found the first comic, but uh, that would be enough for another one. But depending whether you read it from left to right or vice versa, it tells a different story. And so we go to another, to, to Wadi Hawa, which once was uh, the largest tributary uh, to, to the Nile from the Sahara, linking the central uh, um, Chadian basin of Lake Chad with the Nile well in a westerly, easterly direction. So it was a large river up to 10 kilometers wide and, uh, and the lower part was uh, 500 kilometers long and had really a super regional uh, importance for the southeastern uh, uh, Sahara, and that's how it looks today if you're lucky and you find some windows with some exposed uh, river deposits and you even find people who drowned in this deposit. That's not a burial. Apparently uh, today with practically uh, 5, 20 millimeters of rainfall, uh, there were people drowning in these deposits uh, like this uh, gentleman which was dated to around 7,000 years ago. And this place, uh, once you look into the deposits, which looks like this today, has looked into detail like a site in northern Cordofan or western Darfur, as it looks today. Uh, and everything you see on this picture from the deposits to the bird bones we found in the deposits um, in this place. And that's how it looks in some other places where you found in, in such places uh, high-energy freshwater oysters uh, which you find today in the cataracts along the Nile Valley, but certainly no more anywhere in the Sahara or jaws of, of, uh, of elephants or uh, exotic minerals like this realistic volcanic rock, which indicate that there was a long, long-range uh, fluvial transport until a few thousand years ago. And you have probably the most ancient rock art at all, at least in northern Sudan, where you find these herds of rhinos, which are normally solitarily uh, living animals, uh, with, with peaceful, uh, 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 peaceful uh, people in between. So this is, to me, really some sort of uh, impression from this early, uh, uh, of, of early paradise, which is depicted at this uh, single uh, rock art site uh, near Wadi Hawa. And of course, archaeology, it's a nightmare. You have square miles large uh, uh, um, sites, which have a cultural layer up to one meter in depths. That means it takes uh, a few weeks just to uh, excavate a few square yards, not to think of square mile. That means these are the largest prehistoric sites which uh, are even 
more expanded than any prehistoric site along the Nile Valley, but they will certainly never ever uh, be excavated. And they are, every single piece you find here consists of pottery or bone remains, because this is uh, the, on top of a dune, whereas for physical reason uh, there is not any other material to be expected. So we also found the largest and only big construction we ever found during the past 40 years, which is a fortress, a diameter 150 yards with um, walls up to 8 meters. And uh, as we know today, it probably dates back 3,000 years from the Napaten uh, 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 period, uh, but to the present day, its purpose is not uh, well known. Why uh, to establish such a, such a big fortress 100 kilometers away from the Nile? Um, um, and probably, of course, uh, to, to impress people coming from the south or controlling any traffic, traffic uh, transport, maybe of gold and so on. But this uh, uh, puzzle hasn't been solved yet. So just one few what we can show from the different region in, 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 in the Eastern Sahara, that's how the environment changed from a, from a, a, from a, a, a region uh, with lots of lakes and temporary rivers, and then the, the Paleo Lakes dried out until people, ha people had to shift to places with near-surface ground groundwater where they could dig, uh, walk in well. So, uh, as a, a survival strategy uh, to, to survive, until even that groundwater fell too deep and they had to either to move or to die. So the. Most important example for the reconstruction of paleoclimatology are the Unyanga lakes uh, to the present day the, um, in a hypercontinental position very far from the, from the nearest uh, ocean coasts. And the first exploration uh, happened uh, um, in 1916 by some French military geographer. And that's, in fact, the state of the art we had when we took up the research in, in the late 90s, because the north of Chad was no more place to go there. But to go there is uh, uh, takes some time, and just to get the, the material and the vehicles there uh, and, and doing the fieldwork at this site so far already uh, took almost one year of, of fieldwork. And that's why, uh, well, I was lucky to, to do this fieldwork or the other were lucky not uh, to take this venture. But going there is worth any trip. So you must imagine you cross the Sahara, which sometimes takes one week, two weeks, depending where you come, three weeks. And then you go without single, seeing a single piece of grass. And then you arrive at this spot and you advance in just one meter or two meters, and then you have the site of this inner, of the largest lake surface uh, in the Sahara uh, of today, and where you have still islands um, um, in, 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 in these uh, lakes and all kinds in the very rare moments where there's no wind, you have all kinds of reflections. And there's even, and that's another speciality, you have freshwater lakes, which are a paradoxon to any arid place because, you know, any freshwater gets salty within a few years or decades at best. Uh, and these are lakes uh, which for, uh, where you find today even uh, toads and, and, and living mollusks, uh, which are in a direct genetic line from the mollusks which are exposed in the old lake beds. And you also find fish and they... Uh, this salt, uh, these freshwater lakes uh, occur only because of a unique natural uh, uh, 
mechanism, uh, which consists that the firma big lake, which once was, uh, of course, much, much later, was dissected by encroaching dunes, which made several lake chambers, so to say, and the groundwater, and of course this lake is uh, is 100% supported by fossil groundwater, by rainfall which fell in the early Holocene and uh, 100% against a measured evaporation of more than 6,000 millimeters a year uh, which makes it uh, another natural extreme and the groundwater which goes into this peripheral lake uh, is transported through the dune, uh, dune uh, bodies into the central salt lake which works like a gigantic evaporation pump and keeps this mechanism going. And that's why you have fresh, uh, fresh drinking water you can use in a place where uh, it's, uh, it's not supposed to be there. There are other lakes um, in, in the western part, but they are all highly saline, and the most important of it is Lake Yohan, which is uh, uh, the largest body of water in the Sahara because of this, its depths of uh, 27 meters. It has a diameter of only two miles, um, but because of its depth, which is again fully 100% depending on of, of fossil groundwater, and the evaporation on these lakes is uh, equals the consumption of a, of a European town with one million uh, inhabitants uh, permanently. And all this tremendous loss of more than six meters of water column is completely recharged by fossil rainwater, and that makes it so exceptional. But um, by the way, you can uh, uh, um, subscribe to this uh, magazine freely, and in the uh, present uh, edition, there's also an article on it. And the most important thing for science is that when I went there for the first time in 99 with a small rubber boat and not even knowing the depths of the lake and it get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and then I took a gravity core and what you can see here that when I took the core out you have had what we called a waft layering that means you have one layer for summer, one layer for winter, one layer for summer, one layer for winter, etc. And that's the best you can have um, as a paleoclimatologist uh, because uh, such sediments give very precise uh, data uh, and uh, information on climate change down to a sub-annual uh, chronological scale. And you see that the top of the core is completely undisturbed and consisting only of, of algae, which are still uh, drizzling down while we are uh, here together. The uh, sedimentation goes on and provides a new record for the, most re for the last years. And this uh, made... Um, was good enough for a science cover story and uh, to cut a long story short, uh, the analysis of uh, pollen data and several other data were clearly indicating that, that there was a very gradual desiccation of the Sahara during the past 6,000 years uh, from a fully developed savanna vegetation uh, over some sort of Sahelian-type vegetation to the present day, uh, to, to some desert vegetation until even this uh, disappeared and uh, there was nothing left but some oasis um, flora around the lake. And this is in clear contrast uh, to the assumption of my friend uh, Peter, uh, who was claiming that uh, this aridification of the Sahara happened very quickly within decades. And the analysis, detailed analysis of this core uh, showed that there's really not a single year missing in this record. And that's why we returned there in 2010 with some heavier equipment uh, and working 
uh, for a long time uh, under quite uh, high temperatures to extract the longest core, not only of the Sahara or, or even Africa, but probably on Earth, where we have 16 meters of the subannually laminated deposits, um, which uh, I consider as some sort of Rosetta Stone for paleoclimatology of the Sahara and uh, uh, there's uh, lots of uh, publications in the pipeline, so there's hardly any other comparable site on this. And of course, these lakes were up to 100 meters higher than today because there is former lake deposits on top of the surrounding uh, table hills, uh, which uh, give information on the former extent, which, for example, uh, you see here in Lake Ewa was much, much uh, 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 bigger than, than what's left uh, today. And apart from science, uh, usually our counterparts in Africa, they are less interested in paleoclimate than in mineral deposits, or in that case, in an initiative I took uh, 15 years ago to get these, uh, these lakes listed as, as a World Heritage Site. And this is what's happened. That's why we got I got with my colleagues decorated as Knights of Chad by the Chadian president and even all the local people and the local hierarchy are very happy because nobody, even most Chadians, have never heard about these lakes. Nobody ever went there and now they are the first, first World Heritage uh, natural site uh, in one of Africa's largest countries and there's already lots of improvements for the live, daily life of the people available today. So a short example because I've been mostly talking about climate environmental change. I will also give one example on, uh, on, from archaeology. And that's one site we call Chara. It's a, it's, a, it's a cave in the central Egyptian plateau where such kind of artifacts uh, of knives uh, were produced by the prehistoric people, real pieces of art, uh, which later... 500 to 1,000 years uh, occur in the Nile Valley. And if you have such a, uh, the former uh, collection of uh, these artifacts in the, in the, in the, uh, which were excavated even 100 years ago in the Nile Valley and you put the samples, uh, the artifacts from the Sahara uh, over and you see they're really fitting them uh, completely, but only they were couple of hundred years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years older. And that same applies to some sort of typical pottery with some uh, black uh, uh, rims and so on, which also occurs hundreds of years earlier than the first, uh, first time in the Nile Valley. And there's also a lot of other um, evidence on even links even during the later period uh, between that the last ecological niches remaining in, the, in what became more and more a desert, the desert as we know it today, with the Nile Valley, including, no time for that, but possible uh, origins of hieroglyphic writing uh, even deep in the Sudanese uh, desert. So now you almost made it. I make a short time travel uh, through the uh, last 11,000 or 15,000 years. That's how it looked like, say, 15,000 years ago, the Eastern Sahara. You don't see a single prehistoric site. There was absolutely no occupation or 
in 35 years we would have overlooked it, but uh, there's really many reasons to believe that the entire, that this equals the size of Western Europe. It's more than two million square kilometers, not a single site, while all available, all known prehistoric sites are along the Nile Valley, of course, because of the Aswan rescue, uh, Nubian salvation campaign, they are better studied here than here. But there's not a site anywhere outside until apparently some 11,000 years, uh, the Nile Valley became too overcrowded at least that's one explanation because there are graveyards where you still find arrowheads and, and uh, individuals which were apparently killed by arrowheads uh, by tribal fights and so on. So suddenly, uh, apparently, the Nile, Way, Nile Valley, which uh, was receiving much less rainfall than during the uh, later period, uh, was no more a perfect place to live. And this changed relatively rapidly, not within the decades or within generations, but say between 500 to 800 years when monsoonal rain coming from the south uh, went north, uh, uh, from where it is today, changing. That was once a completely unoccupied uh, um, subcontinent into a savanna. That means there was no more desert uh, uh, in, in the strict sense. It was uh, certainly arid to semi-arid with rainfall uh, below 150 millimeters, always against the evaporation of 6,000 millimeters. But today, but you see, that's the green Sahara. And what is clear, that you hardly have any site left along the Nile Valley where all the occupation sites are in the, in, the, in what is today the Egyptian Sahara and you have a couple of sites in, in the North and Sudanese uh, desert, uh, Sahara but not in the, in the part which received most of the rainfall and again the best explanation is that it was just too humid, too dangerous, too, uh, too unpleasant for daily living that People, prehistoric people who certainly arrived from the south moved northward where they had these open savannas which are good for, for grazing, for hunting, game, etc., etc., and um, a much better place to live uh, than along a, a temporary river infested by all kinds of uh, unpleasant um, animals. And this situation uh, stayed there, there for around 2,300 years when there was a development not only and even previously of, of pottery which is maybe uh, which is a sign of the so-called Neolithic uh, revolution, uh, which, which is probably until maybe the electronic uh, revolution recently was the biggest step forward in mankind because this is a sign of sed sedentary living uh, with lots of implication and later uh, domestication of, of grains and uh, especially domestication of cattle, which is of pastoralism, which is a way of life which still is, is, is uh, um, the most important one for the rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa. But anyway, people were living all around and that's uh, a phase where only in the north there was, was some influence uh, for the introduction of, of, of goat and cattle, while, uh, goat and, and sheep, while probably cattle was an autochthonous invention uh, from, uh, from the green Sahara period. And this situation uh, changed uh, 5, 000, uh, about 5,300 uh, years uh, BC when you see that there 
uh, there was first of all a shift of settlement sites into the south, what is today the northern Sudanese desert. People were uh, uh, surviving only in ecological niches, be it in the plateau, in, in niches like on the Gilf-Kibir plateau or in the Oasis depression, but in the vast basis of the eastern Sahara, there was no more settlements. And especially uh, what you see is that 3,500, you have hardly any settlement site uh, left, any settlement left in what is the western desert of Egypt today and you have a complete uh, 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 corridor of, of um, settlement along the Nile Valley and, uh, and some remaining uh, uh, settlers uh, further south in the Sahara. And you see that this was really the decisive date, 7,000 years, around 7,500 years ago, when there was really the onset of the desiccation of the Sahara, uh, which uh, went on until probably very recently. Another interesting subject is the importance of the desert to the pharaonic period, but this would be good for another talk uh, when there was a first trans-Saharan expedition sent by the pharaohs with, uh, with a lot of most recent and unpublished discoveries during the past few years. So again, the whole picture, the Sahara once was at least one quarter larger than it is today. So in spite of 9 million square kilometers, it was probably 12 million uh, kilometers, so covering much more than one-third of the continent, a relatively sudden onset of the Green Sahara, a relatively stable period of 2,500 years, and then a very gradual southward retreat uh, of the desert margin to the situation where it is today. Um, and again, if you see, if you look to uh, uh, thousands of, of archaeological and radio and, and geological radiocarbon dates, again you see from in this graph, which is uh, uh, aligned from north to south, a relatively simultaneous onset of settlement, and then you had this period uh, where what we call the formation period, where uh, uh, people. They did a big, big cultural and socio-economic steps, and and then uh, 5,300. That was the onset uh, of 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 the aridification of the Sahara, and then later appeared only in ecological niches. There was room for survival, or you had uh, to move south. That means stay and die or maybe develop some survival strategies for some generation, and then you have to move or die, and that's what people did uh, during all this time. And uh, again, this is maybe a, a synthesis of uh, this a year, all these uh, decades of fieldwork, where again you see the north, the trend, the relatively simultaneous onset of settlement all over the Sahara, and the gradual uh, uh, desiccation of the desert. And that's uh, goes along with what we always call Egypt's desert routes, and where you have all kinds of desert traditions which made it into the pre-dynastic period and later even in the dynastic time. And this, uh, by my friend and colleague Rudolf Cooper, was our guiding line of our research uh, uh, all uh, since since 19, late 1970s, and. Probably no more time uh, to, to read all to this, but uh, who wants to know better can stop the stream or so on. But essentially that's what I said again in a few lines. And now concerning the desert origins of the 
dynastic civilization that was, I mean, the traditional view was always that the origins of, of Egypt, of the Egyptian civilization, all came from Southwest Asia and were introduced by some sort of superior culture. Uh, but I think this uh, notion is more and more uh, given up, except by some very traditional Egyptologists. And there's lots of proof that there was really this biggest step into uh, in, in, in human evolution from, uh, from, from, from hunters and gatherers to sedentary uh, people living more or less a way of life we still do today with the invention of the uh, uh, biggest invention, which was pottery at the period, which provided for the preservation of food and, and, and other uh, things. Uh, this was clearly happen, happening completely independently from what was happen, happening in, in the Levant, um, in Palestine, and so on. And the uh, more or more evidence uh, shows uh, that, that there's many technological, cultural, socio-economic uh, traditions which were invented in the West, what is today the Western Desert of Egypt, and which were introduced into the prehistoric and pharaonic cultures in the Nile Valley. And now again, unless you claim that the coincidence of the state of roughly 3,500 BC, when there was absolutely no more room, not even uh, one niche, uh, existing niche where you could survive in the desert and this equals exactly the time the origin of the Egyptian civilization uh, then uh, you will probably see some climate impact on it and maybe even a climate control which doesn't work everywhere so it does make a big difference if you're in Somalia and there used to be 300 millimeters rainfall today is 200 millimeters of rainfall that doesn't make that much but when you're in a region where you had 150 millimeters and later you have none this makes a big difference and that's why we all firmly uh, um, believe uh, that this aridification of Sisara which was terminated 3,500 at the same time gave rise uh, to the origin of the Nile Valley civilizations, not only in the Nile, but also uh, no, not only in Egypt, but also in Sudan, in the Nubian civilization. And that's why we shorten up uh, always. Uh, so Egypt is not only at least a gift of the Nile, as already Herodotus said, but at the same time a gift of the desert. And now I thank you for your... Uh, um, um, enduring uh, to this many slides and after hope for a discussion <laughs> I hope you have a good way back my leg went to sleep I'm not having a uh, stroke or anything here I think about an hour of thinking about that would be in order at this point. <laughs> um, okay, a quick, easy question from Jim Spaulding. Why don't you helicopter into these places instead of grinding your way across an impossible surface? Well, it's, it's they too far away, and even the most modern uh, Egyptian uh, army helicopter, they could make it one way, but not back. On the other hand, theoretically, all the place where we live, uh, where we 
uh, where we do our research is, is a protected military area. That means uh, getting a helicopter there, even for this is impossible, and even very good uh, US colleagues from SLEXTEF, in spite of year-long waiting, they never got the permit just to take a research aircraft to fly over the Western Desert, so this is certainly no option. And if you have lots of time, then maybe an army-type rescue uh, um, mission could make it, but then you certainly uh, would need to wait for weeks and so far never ever in most of these places a helicopter has been to the present day. Um, where have you been the last couple of days and why? <laughs> where I've, I've been to Chad I'd, uh, a few days ago before just changing the plane for San Francisco. I've been in the capital of Chad. Uh, uh, and the hottest uh, African capital, we had temperature 45 degrees Celsius and in the beginning rainy season that makes a permanent sauna. And there uh, <laughs> the, the objective was to push forward another World Heritage Project uh, uh, to, to work that hopefully next year or at least one year later the Energy Plateau will, will be uh, elected as the second World Heritage Site of one of Africa's largest countries. That sounds great. Say a little more. You showed us some of the stuff of that plateau. Um, will it becomes a World Heritage Site, does it then become a place that some of us can go and visit and see some of those incredible box canyons and monument valleys and rock art and the rest of it. What happens when it becomes a World Heritage Site? Oh, sure. Well, if, I mean, there's, of course, uh, very strictly um, guidelines for any World Heritage Site, and so all the, the host countries, uh, because this is World Heritage and not just National Heritage, so they are uh, advised to follow it, and usually taking... Uh, it's relatively easy to control the relatively few visitors who will go there mm. during the next years and decades, provided that the security situation remains stable, because in contrast to practically all, all of history, North and Chad now is the only tranquil, quiet island in, mm. within the Sahara, while all the other 10 Saharan states are practically no more place to go, at least not into the desert, unless you want to do some adventure uh, travel. <laughs> so are, are other scientists following your path, Aaron? One of the questions I had to do is, why is Germany so particularly interested in this part of the world, and, and you're a German scientist, operating what looks like a German scientific tradition? Um, and have forged the way into some amazing areas and amazing kinds of discovery. Are other scientists following now in, in pursuing these paths of research? Well, it's getting more and more difficult to have to find students who are ready to go into the field for months without Why? an extreme. What's wrong? It's because it's extreme group conditioned. You're like on a space shuttle. There's no way to have a beer one day. You're practically in the night. You can take your sleeping bag and go away from the camp for a couple of hundred meters. We are living on five liters a day, one gallon a day, which we hardly use except when it really gets hot. Everything included. In the night, it's very cold. Daytime, it's very hot. You can't take a shower for months. You are separated from your family or friends for for months, so fewer and fewer uh, students are ready uh, to, to take this just to do the research. So what we still, uh, so we are sort of outdying species uh, of this type of research. We have to wait for some Mars-type robots who will uh, take the follow-up. And usually it's still some
sometimes possible to find students who go along once to write their diploma thesis or their PhD and so on, but right after they switch over to remote sensing, lab work, etc. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stefan, this is involved. shocking. <laughs> it's shocking, yes. The it's younger depressing. generation of explorers are, are wusses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you've, you've, you've said, you say so. Oh, you know, I would expect, you make this adventure look so tough and incredible that you, if anybody, would be attracting people who would be coming up after talks like this saying, okay, I'm changing my life, I want to go to the hardest, <laughs> most exciting places in the world where really original discoveries can be made. You don't have a lot of people being inspired to go off and do that through this? No, I have a long, long list of so-called amateurs, of laymen, of people, save me, rock art, hunters or interested in rock art or adventurers and so on, if I retired uh, generals, doctors. So I have a long, long, long list of people with just one call, one email, and I can take along 50 on one trip. The problem is this is not covered by the German Research Council, and I need to take scientists or students to do this kind of research. And of course, you need some training, and, and that, that's a problem. So, I mean, there's lots of highly enthusiastic people who would right. pay even a lot just to follow it because right, right. we're really going to this last unexplored, little explored uh, places which you can't uh, order with some tour operator. But unfortunately, we need uh, specialists and, and they are difficult enough to get. And also, it's, it's all you need. Normally, it's impossible to find, uh, to get a good team because first of all, most important is you have to have a team which gets along for a specific time uh, of, of, of a period of time uh, in extreme group condition. Right. Of course, you need a, a high, very good field researcher. Right. Then you need at the same time, say, a good writer who puts it all, to the, to the, does the paperwork. Then you need one who knows about lab analysis, which is uh, very important. And then you need one who does cooking, who can change cars, who can solve mechanical problems, etc., etc. And this list is very difficult to complete. And uh, so um, even in the good old days, it was difficult to get some teams which you could get along. Because, well, if you have one or two in the team who hate to do it and, and you have, you know, you have, mm. you, you, they are around for the next two months, you can send them home. Right. Uh, that's really the worst what can happen. And... Um, so, so the training part sounds like, in a way, the, the, the sort of hardest fill. What training do you really want in the scientists that you would take into a place like this? What, what background do they need to have? What kinds of backgrounds do they need to have to be useful? No, of course, it's mostly a background in geological fieldwork, in archaeological excavations, in botanical uh, research, and so on. Uh, and... Um, of course, uh, it's, it's, uh, this is uh, the profile, but at the same time, one has to be ready to take these conditions, and I would say most of at least the German soldiers would not be ready to do this way of life for an extended period of time. So it's really a big problem hmm. apart from academic specifications of this kind of field research. Well, you know... Hmm. With YouTube and extreme sports and sort of the, the things that people show off, uh, I would. Th this is more interesting than going to Mars. In fact, it's pretty similar to going to Mars, except you can actually get there. And, 
I'm astonished there isn't more attraction for, for highly skilled, highly trained, highly courageous, and highly cooperative people to come and find their way onto these expeditions. So get with it, people. <laughs> um, question, uh, in your 40 years of exploring the deep Sahara, have you ever visited the same location during the same time of year and found uh, differences? Or is it the main event that nothing changes? Oh, it changes. I mean, it's a highly dynamic environment, all deserts. And even if, if you go to a specific uh, location during different time of the day, in the morning, at midday, in the evening, you see different things because of, of, of the light which comes okay. from different angles. Right. Sometimes you, you go in the morning, you find nothing but fish remains. In, in midday, you find uh, plenty of meteorites, and in the evening, you find pl plenty of, of pottery fragments all around, just depending on the light which gets there. And of course, uh, because of the ever-shifting sands, sometimes places are exposed which are covered the next day and sometimes covered for a thousand years. Others which move forward, for example, we found, once found a dinosaur skeleton mm -hmm. uh, in the... Uh, 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 windward direction of this big uh, uh, crescentic Bacan dunes. I, when I tried, uh, came with some specialists five years later, this 20-meter-high right. Bacan dunes weighing 200,000 uh, tons uh, was over it, so it would need to have to wait a couple of hundred years until it moves by, and so it's not uh, just a matter of returning uh, uh, there, but you always find new things and some things you overlooked and so, so on. And the, the lesson there is never discover something in front of a Bacan dune. <laughs> 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 discover things that are being revealed by the Doing this moving on. Both, for example, we found of, of one of the uh, pioneer explorers, Ralph Becknard, who I still got to know, who died uh, almost 30 years ago. And we found, for example, his, some of his camps uh, in 1930 with a whiskey bottle of whiskey, uh, with a piece of Times uh, 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 newspaper. And this was covered by, the, by this gigantic dune. And 50, 60 years later, we found the campsite, and so we could calculate the speed of the dunes, dune right. advancement. Really. And the newspaper was readable. It was readable. It's a very dry, because unless in the tropical uh, realm, uh, so everything, which is, it's dry. There's no mm -hmm. animals, not even termites who could eat it. So usually what you find there, it stays like it is and, uh, until the erosion by, by the wind uh, um, removes it completely. I imagine the whiskey bottle looked kind of Jaws, good at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> should have kept ours. Um, so the desert is telling this long-term story of that, that you've dissected in, in great detail. Um, and, and there's a flux, and, and we see similar things in the stories of the ice coming and going in the north, and here the rains coming and going in North Africa. What's your sense of, in that sort of long oscillation, how it plays out over the next 10,000 years to come up with a round number that we like a lot? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that's not politically correct, what I'm going to answer oh, uh, to your question. Uh, I like it. Uh, well, generally, according, I mean, most uh, uh, paleoclimatologists agree that uh, the... Uh, the uh, uh, 
past climate history was mostly controlled by, by astronomical factors, that means the so-called Milankovitch curves uh, and the insulation uh, on, on what is today northern Africa during the pre, uh, pre preceding uh, two and a half million years when there was one humid phase more or less every 100,000 years. That was quite a, 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 a regular cycle, of course, with some changes. And for example, the preceding wet phase, the so-called Eemian or isotopic, marine isotopic H5, that was probably much more important than the last uh, uh, the early Holocene, uh, 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 Green Sahara, and it was much longer. But this was this trend. And so normally, I would say, well, the last glacial maximum happened some 25,000 years ago. That means we would have to wait for the next period of a Green Sahara, regreening of the Sahara some 60,000 years. This would be the natural cycle. Now, since the uh, late 88, uh, 1980s, I... I uh, I found in these remote places where there is no human use, not even uh, by, by, by Bedouins or, or the, the, by, by their camels or, or goats, uh, there is a clear trend for a very slow onset of a sort of regreening at the southern margin of, of what is today the desert a re boundary. A regreening that means some grasses, there's increasing rainfall, which pro produces uh, a, a, a more grass land, mm. which then attracts uh, a, a camel people who came first time in generations much further north, and then animal, uh, some birds arrive, uh, uh, mice arrive, snakes arrive. We even see now ostrich and so on, and the gazelles wow. are multiplying. So there's really a clear trend. Of course, you can only see it once you go to places which are without any, uh, which are not used for grazing or not so on. So that's what everybody's talking about, the encroachment of the desert. This is only valid around the big cities. And now imagine, for hmm. example, Darfur. It had a population of one million inhabitants in the 1950s. Now we are approaching 10 million within 60 years. Mm -hmm. And of course, once you're approaching the big cities, I mean, the, that's all desert land. There's no more trees, there's nothing. But once you go to places which is far away, there's an opposite trend. And so uh, I, I get insulted as some sort of climate septic because just because I say there's always winners and losers, and which is very bad for the Bangladeshi, maybe good to the sub-Saharan uh, 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 Sahelian zone or even for the old uh, sub-desert uh, sub, uh, zone of the old world desert which reaches from the Atlantic into central uh, China. And this is, I would say, if this continues, it's a positive trend. Mm -hmm. But again, this doesn't mean everybody has to buy a high-powered vehicle just to speed up the process. But the, <laughs> the, the trend seems to be there. And, well, it's now for 25 years... Um, that it can't be denied, and there's more and more remote sensing studies and also other arguments which now uh, follow this um, early suggestion. So it's been going on 25 years, and you showed me a photograph earlier in the green room, you showed me a photograph of a, a piece of desert which would be the most boring place on Mars. It's you know, flat, nothing. And then another year, the same place, where it's absolutely verdant with, it looks like, flowers and forbs, with uh, grass, with you know, shrub-like stuff and so on. People did not seed that. So that suggests to me that in that, in that 
totally desiccated desert, there was a seed bank of plant seeds just waiting patiently for a bit of rain. Is that the case? How old are those seeds, do you suppose? How long do they have to wait? They can apparently wait hundreds of years. And of course, sometimes, normally, the dominating winds, 95% are the trade winds coming from mm -hmm. the north. But there, of course, are rare southerly winds, which then, even to the present day, can bring seeds far into the desert. And then it just needs well, some local rainfall. And, and you have, uh, uh, within days and weeks you have a cover a coverage uh, and this doesn't apply only to the eastern Sahara my Sahrawi friends from the from the western uh, uh, part of the Sahara mm -hmm. uh, my Chadian friends in north my Sudanese friends I mean everybody who goes there is telling the same story they can't believe it every year they say it has never been that green the next day they say it has never been that green but oh, of course only there where there's hardly any human being once it's used and you just have, have uh, to, to, you would have to make a fence around it and you would get a regreening belt, which is being done these days of trying this, make this green wall on the south, uh, southern border of the Sahara. It's a big project which already uh, has started uh, quite well, which mm -hmm. one day shall make a fenced area from the Atlantic to the Red Sea and to show and to first to, to prevent uh, wind encroachment, uh, sand encroachment, but also to, to make a natural green wall against uh, uh, the desert. And uh, this is, if this trend continues, it's certainly... Oh, wait, this one. is somebody's fantasy, or is this is a scheme that various nations across that part of Africa are collaborating on? It's a scheme. Theoretically, all sub-Saharan states are collaborating. But of course, sometimes they have other problems, and uh, not talking about the increasing insecurity in the Sahara. It has never been so difficult to do fieldwork in the Sahara like today. That means our paradise of fools where we could do what we like for decades. This is gone probably forever. And... Um, because nobody will take away the small arms, nobody will take uh, away the GPS and, mm -hmm. and the landmines and so on. So this is uh, there to be almost forever, I'm afraid. And um, so, uh, but the scheme is officially convened. This, this grand project of greening that band of Africa, um, there's a science fiction book called Dune, Frank, <laughs> Frank Herbert, that comes to mind of a desert people you know, taking generations to, uh, with a grand vision of how they can revitalize, in that case, their planet, in this case, an entire area of an amazing continent. Anyway, this is an extraordinary vision. Um, and it, you know, apart from helping with this kind of exploration, one then wants to wonder are there ways to help that scheme to you know, help the regreening of that part of long, ungreen Africa to maybe help with restoring not only the plant life but the biodiversity that presumably goes with that plant life if it's allowed to? Is, is that also part of this fantasy? <laughs> it sure is. So I think that really the, the major problem, again, political incorrect, is the exponential population growth in sub-Saharan Africa. I think with a stable uh, population, say that of the 1950s, mm -hmm. uh, I think there would already be a very positive trend 
recognized by all the people living there. But of course, this is a very sensitive uh, subject in, in all religions, and, and uh, mm. which is ignored. But in the, in the fact, many, many problems from Darfur to anywhere, they're all related to this for the lack of natural resources mm. compared to the ever-increasing population everywhere. And that's uh, the major problem, which is um, there's no way uh, for any solution uh, in the next uh, time ahead, I'm afraid. Well, back to exploration. Arena asks, you've found so much. Uh, is there anything you're looking forward to in this region? Region. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you want to explore, that you want to find, that you think are important discoveries, kinds of discoveries yet to be made. What's still out there? Oh, sure. Uncountable. I mean, there's still for generations of field research. I mean, for example, the northern part of Chad is, as I think I mentioned, is as unknown as southwestern Egypt. This plateau was was 120 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still a big, 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 100 years ago, only 100 years ago, there was hardly, it was discovered only later, means 90 years ago, even the same situation is in northern, in northern Chad, where you still have unhidden treasures. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no way not to find anything if you know what you're looking for in the Sahara. Yes, there's some people who go there and said, oh, what the archaeologists are telling about all these artifacts. We spent there months, we never uh, found anything. Once uh, you know a bit and you only see what you know, when, once you know it, for example, for years we didn't find fish bones, this parts of this Nile perch, for example. Once we knew to recognize, we found them everywhere. Same applies mm -hmm. to metrites, to uh, pottery, to uh, artifacts, uh, to, to many, many, many other other things, microlis, tiny things, that mean no matter where your car breaks down or you have to change uh, the, the tire, you get off and you find something. <laughs> so even sometimes in the night when you're looking, you're always looking and I hate to sleep right at the campsite because someone's snoring, some parts are, are, are moving and so on. So always in the night I take my sleeping bag and my sack and go a couple of hundred meters away from the camp upwind and so finally I find a site. <laughs> I, find, I find a place to put my, my uh, mattress and my sleeping bag and in the night I wake up and I look to my right looking for my torch. What do I have in hand? Uh, Acholian hand aches, which can be 500,000 years ago. <laughs> I, look, I look at the other side. Again, I don't find my torch. I have another Acholian hand aches. Mm -hmm. And the next morning I look around the hand axes are really concentrated at this specific site where it's protected from the wind by some sort of inselberg, by, by, by some, uh, by, by some uh, rock obstacle. That means some prehistoric hunters and gatherers 500, 400, 300,000 years ago had the same problem of looking for a campsite in the night where they didn't get the heavy chill factor. And so uh, it's, it's still unbelievable much to find. I, biggest part of the rock art, for example, in the Chebel Awenat, in this uh, uh, triple junction between Libya and Egypt and Sudan, which we're also trying to get uh, to make it into a transboundary national park, was discovered only during the past 10 years. I mean, and many, many other places are so still uh, unlimited uh, scope for discoveries in these places. And I didn't, couldn't touch upon this ancient pharaonic trails into the Sahara, which, uh, um, which are highly um, 
interesting subjects is first Trans-Saharan highways because at, at, uh, in, during the pharaonic uh, old and middle empire it was, uh, there were no camels of course so any expeditions into what was already a full developed desert demanded highly uh, logistic skills and so on because you had to transport your water with donkeys where you needed hundreds of donkeys just to get the, the water which you then could use as sort of payload and so on. This, and there's lots of interesting discoveries and I'm, I think that uh, these uh, uh, this expeditions which were sent by the pharaohs into the desert where we also already found some hieroglyphic inscriptions in a line that they were heading for the for the NED plateau and for the Unyanga lakes, which during hmm. the uh, earlier time must have been really super regional um, importance. Uh, so certainly the pharaohs all the heard about it and wanted uh, to to get uh, everything which uh, a, a blooming African environment could provide. Okay, so here these guys are on the Nile. They're a long way from those lakes. And are they, and they're heading out in that direction looking for the lakes, freshwater lakes full of fish and stuff. But it's a long way off. So is it stories that they're hearing that there's these lakes out there? Is it the occasional individual who's somehow getting across and saying there's lakes where I just was? How would they know about something that far away that they would do expeditions toward it? It's a very good question <laughs> because, uh, of course, the Egyptians traditionally to the present day are very, very much afraid of the desert. Everything bad always comes from the desert. Today, uh, either it uh, be, be the locusts or be it sandstorms or be it uh, uh, bandits or, or later the Libyans. So we had some, <laughs> we had some uh, Egyptian uh, colleagues with us because the archaeologists always have to take a sort of inspector with them. Hmm. And uh, when he came with us, uh, uh, one of us for 35 years, he, he was never leaving the car. He was because all his colleagues said nobody ever returned alive from the Gilf Kebir. I mean, we spent one or two months in the desert. When we returned and we hit the first tracks and then we hit the first paved road, he went out praying for one hour because it was a new life. That means that's a typical standard. And now imagine in the past, probably there was the same story that yeah. most of the Nile dwellers, mm. everything bad came from the desert. Nobody was the, the, the land of the dead and in many, many uh, hieroglyphic writings it's described of, of the place and where you wouldn't find any good. But then to send expeditions there, long missions which mm -hmm. took months into a direction probably could only have, were only possible with some support, with some local knowledge by maybe the last tough guys who remained Anyway, anyhow, in this remote desert, uh, maybe some very, very last ecological niches and so on. They probably were, were used as guides. We never had any guides because in the Eastern Sahara there are no guides available because uh, all people left 5,000 years uh, ago and, and so we always had to be our guides. But in most other parts of the Sahara, of course... There used to be guides, but it was 5,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But at that time, you didn't need any guides because it was a lush savanna. So <laughs> that's another. But anyway, and so probably they depended on some local knowledge from some tough guys who yeah. let them, where they met them, these people coming from sub-Saharan Africa, exchanging their, their goods and so on. One final story. Tell me about the Persian army that uh, headed into the desert. Well, that's another of the mysteries of the Libyan desert. Uh, after Alexander, there was a, 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 
Persian uh, a general called Cambyses or Cambyses. This is when now? What century are we that, in? That was uh, some 500 BC. Okay. And he, what is known that he went along down the Nile Valley, went west, apparently, and there's a last uh, record that he uh, uh, reached... Uh, uh, Presumably there's Egyptians all along the way. You'll be sorry! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. For That's sure. what I would handle. We're Persians. We know but about at least deserts, he, right? he already was disposing of camels. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and so that was a big advantage. And, and so he probably made it into the New Valley in the Oasis Depression, west of the Nile. And he was heading for the Siwa, which was the site of Alexander's Oracle, and mm -hmm. so on, which was a tricky thing. A friend of mine, Klaus Kuhlmann, who excavated for years, but another story. That's hundreds but of miles see, to the northwest. Across to yeah. the northwest through huh? the Great Sand Sea of Egypt, which consists of this uh, thousand kilometers long longitudinal dues up to 100 meters high, which are e e very difficult to cross by, by camels. Hmm. That means because they have sp steep angles and so on. Anyway, he never showed up in, in Siva, but he left the Oasis Depression. So according to different sources, which range from 5,000 to 50,000, he got uh, drowned by the sand somewhere, hit by some sandstorm. And, but uh, there are some hints on this Persian armies consisting of old stone cairns, which we found, some Persian pottery in some sites, but that's all what is known, and even to penetrate through tens of meters of sand is even with modern means a very difficult task, so still way for An exploration. An mystery. <laughs> it's your job to find out what happened to that army. Thank you so much. <laughs> This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.